Our text of scripture this morning comes from the 25th chapter of Matthew in verses 14 through 30. Jesus speaking, giving several discourses in this chapter on the kingdom of heaven, the nature of the kingdom of heaven as it invades human history. Recall uh, from what has been said before that the kingdom of heaven is not us going up there, it's making us, making up there come down here. And Jesus says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we pray this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. Amen. Well, suppose you had a business and uh, your business prospered and you had many employees and suppose that one employee distinguished himself by his conduct such that you appointed him as the manager of the whole of your business and you had great confidence in him. And say that you had such confidence in this employee that you decided that you could take, finally, an extended vacation. Those of you that own businesses know that it's, it's like having children perpetually. You can't ever get away and feel good about it and feel at rest, but you have such confidence in this employee that he is looking out for your interests, that you uh, say, I'm going to take that vacation with my wife I always wanted to take. 
And say you're going to take a year, travel through Europe and wherever. So you call this employee into your office and you say, I'm going to be leaving for a year and I'm entrusting my business to you. I'm giving you authority to make all decisions on my behalf and I'm giving you access to the company checkbook. I'm empowering you to run all things according to the principles that I have taught you and I will be back in a year. You would expect that employee to avoid two different extremes while you were gone. First of all, you would expect that employee not to waste your resources. If he or she promptly gave themselves a big raise or began to replace all the office furniture with cushy new stuff or all the computers with the latest super fast ones, or if they started hiring family members at exorbitant salaries, or if they arbitrarily decided to give all the other employees a nice fat raise, or they started hosting office parties every Friday with expensive food brought in at company expense, then you would be upset when you returned. You would be upset because that manager had squandered your resources and squandered them on foolish and self-satisfying things that didn't benefit the business. But if you returned from that trip to find that the roof was leaking, that there was broken equipment that had been unrepaired or unreplaced, and that even though business was good, employee morale was in the basement because this person had cut everybody's salary by 10% for no real reason at all, then you would be equally upset because your manager had not spent the resources you gave him or her in the care of the business. No, you would want that employee's behavior to fall somewhere between those two extremes. You wouldn't object to an office party or two at company expense, but every Friday is excessive and wasteful. You wouldn't object to replacing office furniture or computers as long as the old items really were worn out or obsolete. You wouldn't object to hiring new people, maybe even relatives, if there was a genuine need to hire a new person and if that new person really was the best person for the job that could be found. You wouldn't object to raises or bonuses as long as business conditions warranted it and employee performance warranted it and the amounts were reasonable. You wouldn't object to money spent fixing a roof or repairing and replacing equipment, even if it was a lot of money, because those things are necessary to the function of the business. You would frown on excess frugality that harms your business, and you would also frown on profligate use of the business's resources. You would demand wise stewardship of the resources entrusted to this employee. In a way, that's the situation we find ourselves in when we look at what the Bible says about the right use of the creation, of the gifts that God has given us corporately and especially personally and individually. God is the owner of all things, including you. You are the manager. He has entrusted you with the responsibility to use the resources that he owns to accomplish the purposes that he has set forth. He has educated you and given you principles that he wants you to apply in the process of pursuing those goals. 
And the first thing we must acknowledge is that all of the resources at your disposal actually belong to God because we say this, but we have a hard time fixing it in our heart. God owns it all by right. By convention, we talk about things as though they were ours. We talk about my time, my body, my life, my money, my house, my car, my children. Now, when we say that, we need to keep in mind what we mean by using the word my. If you talk about the chair and the desk that you sit in at work, which the company purchased for you to use, it is legitimate to talk about them as my chair and my desk. Where are the papers? Oh, they're on my desk, in my office. But if you quit your job, you don't get to take your chair and your desk with you. They belong to the company. They stay there for the next employee to use. They're yours while you work there. They're not yours, though, by right. You don't own them. You should therefore care for them and use them wisely. In the same way, you are not the owner of your time. It's God's time. And God has measured the time that he's going to give you out. And he's given it to you to use to accomplish the tasks that he has set forth for you to do. It says in Psalm 139, I read it yesterday for Jim's funeral. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. It says in the book of Job. God has set the number of a man's days and he cannot go past that number. God has decreed the time you get in this world. He's decreed the brain power you get in this world. He's decreed the amount of money you get in this world. He's decreed the social conditions you get in this world. He's decreed all things. And his gifts are good and they're sufficient. And all of these things are just tools that he's entrusted to you to accomplish your job. And he's the one who also gives you the job to do. So these things are yours, sort of, but they're really his, just like the desk and the chair in the company you work for. That's why the fourth commandment begins with, six days shall you labor and do all your work. That's why the Bible tells us, for instance, not to be lazy. That's why the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, it's one of those things people, there's, there's this kind of ethos in some churches where it's like, somehow we're responsible to support people as they behave in a lazy and counterproductive way. And they come in and they've always got some stop story and they want a food card or something like that. And, and 99 times out of 100, they're just scamming you. And I don't have any patience for that. I remember one time when I was in Georgetown, Ohio, I had a woman come in and, and she was with another woman and she had a baby and they'd intentionally left the baby's diaper poopy and it smelled horrible. Oh, we're bad off. Oh, we need food. Oh, we can't make our, our rent. We can't pay our propane bill, this, that, and the other thing. I said, well, have you been to the food? Because we all supported a food pantry at the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, they, they wouldn't give me hardly anything. Well, I knew the guy that ran the food pantry, and he was kind of a pushover, so I knew that wasn't true. And I said, well, do me one more favor before I give you anything. I said, the Church of Christ has their own food pantry. 
go over and talk to them, and if they still don't give you anything, come back here. And in the meantime, I called the guy at the food pantry at the Catholic church. And I said, uh, Marvin, this lady came in, and she said, oh, I gave him a bunch of stuff, including diapers and wipes. That kid smelled horrible. Uh-huh, okay. They come back after they're going to the Church of Christ. Oh, they wouldn't give us anything either, just some canned goods. I said, you're a liar. I said, I know for a fact now. I talked to Marvin over at the Catholic Church. He gave you this, 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 and this. And she got mad at me. And she started yelling at me. I said, get out. And so she gets out. And then she comes back, opens the door, and says, I thought Christians were supposed to help people, and slammed the door. I opened the door, and I said, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And my secretary wanted to crawl under the desk. But that's what God's Word says. You help people that need help, but you don't help people that could help themselves. You've got to work for yourself. You've got to take the things that God has given you. We're not to be lazy. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, or in the words of the King James Version, redeeming the time. It's not just monetary work to provide for your, yourself and your family that God requires of you. It is that, but that's sort of a basement level. The world understands that. The Christian has a higher understanding and a higher obligation. We aren't lazy because laziness is a poor stewardship of God's resources. But you know what else is? Working 90 hours a week, frantic overactivity. Your time is yours to use to accomplish the task that God has given, but it's not yours to waste. Neither should you burn the candle at both ends and neglect the rest and relaxation and spiritual things that are necessary for bodily, mental, and spiritual health. And the same is true with everything else. The same is true with your body. If you overeat or you subject yourself to habits which destroy your body, whether that would be excessive drinking or excessive smoking or excessive sitting on the couch and watching TV, you're in sin. On the other end, compulsive exercise or activities that tear up your body and pulverize your joints or anorexia or bulimia is to not take proper care of God's body that he's given you to accomplish the tasks that he's given. And to use all of this as an occasion for sin, to use this body that he's given you as an occasion for sin, especially things like sexual immorality, represents a blatant abuse of God's resources. The same is true of your intellect. If you've got a fine mind, but you waste your mental energy and your mental time on things that don't profit the Lord, you're in sin. The same is true of your money. It's God's money. He's entrusted it to you to accomplish his purposes. It says in the scripture, the Lord gives you the ability to get wealth. He does. That's what it says. That's not prosperity theology. That's actually what the Bible says. That doesn't mean that you should dedicate your life to getting wealth. That doesn't mean God wants every one of you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's nonsense. But God does give wealth. So if anybody's got wealth, it's because God ultimately gave it to them. Now you may have worked hard in that process of gaining that wealth, but your work only paid off because God blessed you. I know people in Mexico that work really hard and they're not wealthy. 
I know a man in Peru who's a godly man. He's a Presbyterian minister. He works harder than anybody I've ever met. He's not wealthy. It's God who gives you the ability to get wealth. Clearly, God has given over to you a portion of what you earn to use for the maintenance of your life and of your family, and you're allowed to spend it not only on what is needful, but also on what is pleasant, in the same way that your manager has control of all those businesses' resources. And out of that control of those resources, he might have paid himself his salary and maybe even a Christmas bonus if that was something that had happened in the past. And he ate the food at the office party and he had the lunch meetings at the nice restaurants at company expense and there was nothing wrong with that. But God demands at a minimum 10% of the money that he's given you. And that's not a floor, uh, I'm sorry, that is a floor. It's not a ceiling. Some of you in here are poor and living on 90% of what you earn is a real sacrifice. And you have to trust God very often to make ends meet at the end of the month. And you have to deny yourself things that your friends have because God has ordained to trust you with only a little. And that's okay. So you be faithful with that little bit. You be wise and you be faithful with that little bit. And if you show yourself faithful in little things, God says, I'll give you more to be faithful with. Some of you in here are wealthy and to live on 90% of what you earn ought to be no hardship at all. If you lived on 40 or 50% of what you earned, you'd still be better off than the poor people. And if the truth be told, you can't live on 40 or 50% of what you earn or even 80 or 90%, some of you, because you spend it all on your pleasures and then encumber yourselves with debt to buy more. Now, if you would be upset about an employee with access to the company checkbook who lavished 90% of the company budget on himself, how should God feel about your performance? I'm not trying to pump up financial contributions for anything at all. I leave those things to God. But think about what could be done if you release those resources to God. Just as, a, just as an example, my, my grandmother was Lithuanian. And if you don't know where that is on the map, it's next to Russia. It's up in the Baltic republics on the Baltic Sea. Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania are right there together. And for some reason, I've always had a passion for the gospel to go forth into the former Soviet republics. I remember right after the Berlin Wall fell, we had, I was pastoring in Wisconsin, and we had a, a group that was going over to Ukraine. Um, and... Uh, I got, I, I very quickly rounded up several hundred dollars and purchased uh, Russian language Bibles because everybody speaks Russian over there. And we sent cases and cases of Russian language Bibles over there. And the, 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 the team that went, uh, went into one of the main markets in Ukraine. Now, after the wall fell, there was just economic anarchy there. People didn't get paid for months and months and months, and they were living on black market this and black market that, and so the market was where everybody went just to survive. And they just started handing out these Bibles. And they took pictures. And it was amazing, these Ukrainians are like, the word of God. We haven't seen this in 70 plus years, the word of God. There was one woman who was crying as she was reading the Gospel of John. A picture of her, old babushka with, you know, she looked just like what you'd expect a Soviet woman to look like. 
And as they passed out the Bibles, they were standing on the back of this truck, as they passed out the Bibles, they ran out just when they got to this one woman. And she started to weep because she couldn't have a Bible. When they came back and they told us that story, I was like, I'll sell everything I've got, I'll give her a Bible. Because she wanted the word of God. How many people could be one to Christ if we were less selfish? How many people could be one to Christ if we were less selfish with our time, with our money, with our material resources? How many people would Jesus use you to reach if you were just moderate with the things that he gave you? Well, you think about that. Ask yourself, do you... Do you think God gave you resources for you to exercise stewardship over them so that you could buy yourself nice stuff? Or do you think God gave you resources to use for his purposes? What about bringing the gospel to Africa? What about bringing the gospel to China? What about bringing the gospel to Latin America? God gave you resources for that. What about bringing the gospel to the people around us here? That's what Awana is all about. That's what we're trying to do. It's like, for, I, I've been hearing for years, people have been talking about, we need to reach the apartments, we need to reach the apartments, we need to reach the apartments. Okay, let's start a children's ministry. And let's see what happens. Maybe God will bless it. But let's start a children's ministry that isn't about handing out stuff or something like that. Let's start a children's ministry that's about teaching the Bible to young people and getting the gospel into their lives. Because if you're doing nice stuff for people, that's fine. I think we radically overestimate the value of that, but that's fine. But if you never speak the gospel to them, you haven't done anything for the kingdom. Did God give you money to support yourself or did he give you money to share the gospel? Well, both. Did God give you the gift of sex so that you could be fruitful and multiply or so that you could have fun? Well, both. Did he give you children as a pure joy and delight or as a serious responsibility to train up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Both. The problem is that our inordinate and disordered use of the good things God has given us is what's killing us. Our inordinate appetites for the good things. Our tendency to shirk our duties and to evade our responsibilities. And since God didn't give us precise rules for every situation governing whether or not it was okay to spend this much of God's resources on ourselves and this much on others, or whether we should buy a BMW or a Hyundai, and I'll just tell you the truth, I've owned both, buy the Hyundai, and, um, or whether we should buy a 3,000 square foot house or a 1,500 square foot house, or whether sitting on the couch watching football was legitimate rest or sinful idleness. He didn't tell us whether ice cream for dessert was gluttony or a permissible thing. We've got a problem. It's a dynamic process of interaction with the Holy Spirit. It's one of the ways that God learns how to walk or teaches you how to walk with him and you learn how to walk with him. The answer from the Bible is straightforward and it's simple, but it's not easy. And the first part of the answer is, and, and I'll tell you this right now, keep your eyes on your own paper. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Mind your own business. 
Because the first thing that happens when we internalize a message like this is we start going, oh, such and such bought a new car. It's the LE version. That's it's kind of pricey. I, they should have bought something cheaper. If they were really God-honoring, they'd have bought something cheaper. And you're not paying any attention to you. So keep your eyes on your own paper. Pay attention to you. Mind your own business. You've got enough challenges figuring out what God wants you to do without worrying what other people are supposed to be doing in these matters. You don't need to go around looking at where other people live and what other people drive or deciding that they're using too much of God's resources for themselves and not enough for others. Because the truth be told, most of that springs from pride and envy and a desire to avoid your own mess. If God didn't see fit to give you a lot of resources, you might consider that he didn't do it because he knew that you would be a complete disaster if you had those resources at your disposal. That you wouldn't be able to handle it. Now, it might be the job of the elders as those who watch over your souls to come to you from time to time and to ask you probing questions and to get you to examine your motives in your own heart. But since God has left no explicit commands from his word on many of these things, it would be wrong for human beings to invent rules and then bind them on other people's consciences. That's what the, that's what the Amish do, right? That was where all these behaviors come from. Why can't you have buttons? Well, buttons are not plain. We want to be plain. Well, 200 years ago, buttons were not plain. Now buttons are fine. But they still don't have buttons, some of them. Why, why do we wear the clothes we wear? Well, we, we, don't want, we want to be plain. We, we don't want to be ostentatious or wasteful. So they make a rule that everybody has to wear the same thing. That's just binding things up on your conscience that, that really shouldn't be bound up on your conscience. The second part of the answer is found in today's text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31. Let's just read it again together. It was the call to worship, actually. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is a marvelous corrective for these issues. This is what I mean, brothers, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, 29. The appointed time has grown very short. So that's, that's why. That's why, we, that's why we are concerned about these things. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away. We could sum up the teaching of this passage this way. Keep the eternal perspective. Your relationships as they exist in the world are transitory, says Paul. That's why he says those who have wives should live as though they had none. It doesn't mean that you should ignore your wife. It means that your wife and that relationship with your wife or your husband and that relationship with your husband or your children and that relationship with your children is not ultimate. It's important, but it should not control what you do to the detriment of what God wants. 
Your life circumstances, he said, whether they're good or bad, are only temporary. Those who mourn should be as those, as those who did not, and those who are happy as if they were not. Everything is short. It's brief. If Jesus doesn't come back, you get 70, maybe 80 years. If you're blessed, then you go home. How many of you go on vacation and you rent a hotel and then you spend your time wanting to redecorate that hotel room? These towels are just not adequate. Let's go to JCPenney's and buy some really thirsty, nice, fluffy towels. And I don't like these sheets. They're scratchy. And the art on the wall does not please me. Let's go to the, let's go to the, uh, the museum and purchase some prints that we can frame and put on the walls of our hotel room. And that hot plate and that little fridge are completely inadequate. You don't do that. You want your hotel room to be comfortable. If it's not comfortable, you try and find a comfortable one or complain to the manager if he hopes he takes care of that. But you don't expect it to be home. You don't treat it like it's home. You treat it like it's a temporary place where you lay your head for a while and then you go home. Guess what this world is, loved ones? It is a temporary place where you lay your head for a while and then you go home. Jim knows that now. He's home. And he's happy. But he, that message has just been pressed home in the life of this congregation just in this past week. This world is temporary. It's fleeting. We spend all of our time obsessed with it. And God says, no. No. See, look for that which is invisible. And if we're going to keep an eternal perspective, that means that the world, as good as it is, must become low in our estimation. It, it has to go, we have to go, okay, it's important, but it's not that important. It's, it's okay that I, I, I want to be comfortable, but if I'm uncomfortable for a while, it's not the end of the world. I don't have to feel like I've been ripped off. Like God somehow hasn't come through for me. It's fine. You're fine. God's got you. There's a, a, a section of Calvin's Institutes which was excerpted by a Dutch pastor back in the 1700s and published in a standalone uh, fashion. His name was uh, Henry J. Van Andel. And, um, and, and it, it it's, was given the title The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. And it's really wonderfully helpful, especially on these issues. And listen to what Calvin says. I'm going to pick up several little passages here. He says, we are inclined to overestimate this present life. There is no golden mean between these two extremes. Either this earthly life must become low in our estimation, or it will have our inordinate love. Therefore, if we have any concern about eternity, we must put forth our most diligent efforts to free ourselves from our temporal chains. Now, since the present life has numerous attractions and much pleasure and beauty and sweetness to delight us, it is most necessary for our highest interest that we should frequently be called away from it, that we may not be carried away by its glamour. For what would be the outcome? if we were constantly happy in the enjoyment of the blessings of this life? Well, the outcome would be the contemporary evangelical church. 
That's what we see. People are completely happy and enamored with the blessings of this life. So that's the second part of the answer. The third part of the answer is this. We must not underestimate our ability to desire and to misuse God's good gifts and our own self-deception concerning these things. Once again, Calvin writes, First of all, if we want to curb our passions, we must remember that all things are made for us with the purpose that we may know and acknowledge their author. So it's a, all things weren't made for you for you. All things were made for you so that you would look up and go, what kind of being would give me this? And become enamored not with the gift, but with the giver. We should praise his kindness towards us in earthly matters by giving him thanks. But what will become of our thanksgiving if we indulge in dainties or wine in such a way that we are too dull to carry on the duties of devotion or our business? Where is our acknowledgement of God if the excesses of our body drive us to the vilest passions and infect our mind with impurity so that we can no longer distinguish between right and wrong? Where is our gratitude towards God for clothing if we admire ourselves and despise others because of our own sumptuous apparel? Where is it if we prepare ourselves for unchastity with the elegance and beauty of our dress? Where is our acknowledgement of God if our thoughts are fixed on the glamour of our garments? For many so madly pursue pleasure that their minds become enslaved to it. Many are so delighted with marble and gold and painting that they become like statues. They are, as it were, transfixed into metal and begin to resemble colorful idols. Now here's, here's my rebuke here. The flavor of meats and the sweetness of odors make some people so stupid that they no longer have any appetite for spiritual things. And this holds for the abuse of all other natural matters. Therefore, it is clear that the principle of gratitude should curb our desire to abuse the divine blessings. This principle confirms the rule of Paul that we may not make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. For if we give our natural desires free reign, they will pass over all the bounds of temperance and moderation. And fourthly, then, we must determine to live with moderation. Listen to Calvin again. But there is no surer and shorter way to gratitude than to turn our eyes from the present life and to meditate on the immortality of heaven. From this flow two general principles. First, that they who had wives be as though they had none, and they that buy as though they possessed not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, according to the precept of Paul. The second is that we should learn to bear poverty quietly and patiently, and we should enjoy abundance with moderation. He who commands us to use this world as though we used it not forbids not only all intemperance in eating and drinking and excessive pleasure, he also forbids ambition and pride, fastidiousness in our furniture and our home and our apparel. But every care and affection which would drag down our spiritual level or destroy our devotion is to be dealt with. Therefore, though the liberty of believers in external things cannot be restricted by hard and fast rules, yet it is surely subject to this law, that they should indulge as little as possible, 
On the contrary, we should continually and resolutely exert ourselves to shun all that is superfluous and avoid all vain display of luxury. We should zealously beware of anything that the Lord gave us to enrich life, lest it become a stumbling block. The other principle will be that people who are poor should learn to be patient under their privations, that they may not be tormented by a passion for riches. Those who regard this moderation have made no small progress in the school of the Lord, and those who have not made this progress have scarcely given any proof of their discipleship to Christ. And then with the words of Presbyterian divine Thomas Watson, one of the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we close. More people are hurt by lawful things than unlawful, as more are killed with wine than poison. Gross sins frighten us, but how many sicken and die in using lawful things inordinately? Recreation is lawful, eating and drinking are lawful, but many offend by excess and their table is a snare. Relations are lawful, but how often does Satan tempt us to overlove and fondness? How often is the wife and the child laid in God's place? Excess makes things that are lawful to become sinful. Now in the next couple of weeks, I wanna take up an issue that is both related to what we spoke of today and it's also related to the issues of the Holy Spirit that we've been speaking of in these last few weeks. And that is that the Holy Spirit has given us gifts. And he's given us gifts for a reason. And we need to discover those gifts. And we need to discover the reason. And if we're gonna be healthy as a church, we need to begin to take these things seriously. Because God has a plan for us. And it's a good plan, but he needs us to cooperate with it. Amen and amen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer.